Welcome to The Rest is History. Hello. I am Frank Skinner and welcome to The Rest is History, a radio programme about history, not, as you may have thought, a show about what would happen if only people with very long arms played snooker. (laughs) Now, I don't know much about history, but I'm here to learn partly from the insights and musings of my two guests, but mainly from our historian in residence, Dr Kate Williams. So, Dr Kate, I sit cross-legged at your feet. Who's sitting with me this week? Well, Frank, we've got our fabulous comedians Josh Widdicombe and Machine Connerty. Josh and Rasheen. I'm calling you Joshin. <laughs> Is that OK? Yeah, no, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> so, um, so what would you say were your historical credentials? I, I, I always liked history, but I fell out with my history teacher in Year 9. Uh, because whenever she'd say any word with a W in, she'd do a kind of whoa sound, right? and I'd laugh. And then she, uh, as revenge, recommended that I wasn't clever enough to do GCSEs. That's <laughs> terrible. I wonder if she still says I hated that whiddicum. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about you, Rasheen? I've always been quite interested in history. I haven't got many credentials. No. I had the Michael Jackson album. <laughs> oh, yes, of that course. counts for something. That was a double pun as well, wasn't it? Because it was his story. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what history is, though, isn't it? <gasps> oh, very deep well, start. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite political, quite a feminist. <laughs> yeah, his story, eh? Anyway, let's have our first round. Sometimes you hear people say the phrase, needs no introduction. I think that could be said of this round. It's called Great Eye Patches from History. (laughs) Now then, are you aware of any uh, historical eye patch wearers? I see no ships. Gabrielle nailed it. Gabrielle. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she said, I see no ships. That was Gabrielle. I see no ships. It was Nelson, wasn't it? I see no ships. Mm. I am pretty sure, and I'm regularly proved wrong by Dr. K, I think he had a glass eye, but I'm not sure that he wore an eye patch. He doesn't on his pictures. (laughs) No, he might have taken it off for pictures. K, Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson, no patch. It's not true. So there's no patch on Nelson's column, no patch in the pictures, as you said, Frank. And we did, of course, lose the sight in his eye at the uh, Battle of Calvi. Of course. So he lost the sight, but it still had the eye. And, you know, it probably came in the 19th century. They started romanticising the wounded man, so they put the eye patch on. Oh, God. So he didn't have a glass eye? No, he had a real eye. And, you know, Josh was right. He said, I see no ships. This is the Battle of Copenhagen in 1807. You know, it looks like the British are going to be pounded. And the uh, Admiral puts up this big flag signal saying, OK, chaps, give up, go back. And Nelson goes... I can't see it. He basically says, I've only got one eye. I've got the right to be blind sometimes. Can't see anything. Come on, chaps, keep going. And he was right. They won the battle. I prefer I see no ships. Yeah, Yeah, I see no ships. I don't want your medical history, Admiral. (laughs) (laughs) But he did have a peaked eye shade he attached to his hat, but that was for the good eye. But, you know, there's quite a few people in history who... Sorry, it just... peaked eye (laughs) shade. Hold on. (laughs) 
So just a single shade for one eye. Yeah, for the good eye, like like a kind of sunglasses. Well, like a mini baseball cap kind of situation. Yeah, like a porch. Yeah, like a porch. <laughs> an eye porch. He knew about fashion, but there are quite a few people in history who had eye patches, and it adds to the glamour. So there's Ana de Mendoza, who was one of Spain's greatest beauties, even though she had an eye patch after losing a, a mock jewel with a page when she was a child. So she was a 16th century beauty with an Can eye patch. Can you lose a mock jewel? <laughs> but she'll be having a mock jewel because she was a woman. Women can't do a real jewel. Oh, oh. oh no. So, so even if she'd been killed, would they still say she was killed in a mock jewel? Afraid so, as girls are supposed to When does it become do real? It? How much do you have to get injured <laughs> before they acknowledge a real jewel happened? <laughs> I can't think of any other famous pirates. Pirates, but I couldn't name you a famous. Long John Silver's not. He's not real. No. <laughs> have you heard this theory uh, that pirates, when they were up on deck, they put their patch over their good eye so that when they went downstairs, their good eye was used to the darkness. Oh. So they could. Well, say downstairs. I'm not a nautical man. <laughs> <laughs> Below deck. <laughs> When they, went, when they went into the basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, um, then they could take the patch off and they could see it instantly. Oh, wow. There's something of really like a, being a survivor about it and being quite honest about who you are, I think, about the eye patch. That's what it does look like. It's like, I haven't got an eye, I'm covering it up. <laughs> Why specifically do pirates lose so many eyes? Well, if you've ever, if you've, if you've ever had a hook for a hand. <laughs> Alright, I'll rephrase the question. Why did they lose so many hands? <laughs> yeah. The hook would be a problem, would it? It would lead to yeah. eye loss. You just think, oh boy, I'm a bit tired. Ah! I'm going to go as far as say if I lost a hand, I wouldn't go hook. No, I'd go soccer. Mm. <laughs> soccer would be much better and also it'd be a small drinking bowl for the parrot. <laughs> If I had an eye patch, I'd draw a picture of an eye winking. <laughs> well, that's, one of the, that's why people with eye patches come over as a bit cold and unfriendly, because winking is just too much of a risk. <laughs> <laughs> so they, can't give you, they can't give you a friendly wink. They could be over at any time. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Rasheen. If you saw a man in an eye patch, in a black eye patch, right. would that be alluring or would that completely put you off? I don't think it'd put me off. I mean, I wouldn't like to think I'm that shallow. No, I'm trying to find out whether there could have been an advantage in wearing an eye patch for, you know, image purposes like the pirates. But I don't know what message it sends. Maybe like, you know, when people go to prison and they get like the tear mark underneath and stuff. So people celebrating a violent lifestyle. Yeah. It's kind of like, look, I've lost an eye and I've got a parrot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Do you know about pirates, Dr K? There's no evidence about the pirates, because we just can't find it. So the, the golden age of pirating is the 18th century, and there's no picture of a pirate with an eye patch. But there is this theory, just as you said, they're going up and down between lower deck and upper deck, and they have it to adjust when but they're running the, around. But are the portraits of pirates? Well, they aren't really posed portraits. There's more kind of little portraits that go in, in scandal books, like, oh, I was a young, innocent girl, and I was going over the seas, and then the pirates took me and sold me to the Turks. That tends to be what happens. What? What book is that? <laughs> there's lots of them, I'll tell you later. That sounds uh, fantastic. Yeah, there's quite a few great books in which basically women are just over and over again kidnapped by pirates and taken off to Turks. And there's no eye patch, right? No eye patch. It's all about, you know, the risk of going over the channel. The most famous eye patch wearers of history didn't wear eye patches because they're probably Nelson and the Pirates. Yeah. You know Nelson and the Pirates. The second <laughs> album was fantastic. <laughs> 
So, yeah, so I think what I've learned from this is the eye patch is a slight myth. It, it the is only eye patch wearer is Gabrielle. Yeah. <laughs> When I lived in Birmingham, there was a book which gave the background details to all the statues in the area. It was called, I thought rather wonderfully, Solid Citizens. <laughs> so I've nicked the title for this round. Of course, I didn't stay in Birmingham. I had a yearning for the bright lights of the throbbing metropolis, so I moved to Coventry. <laughs> there, I saw a statue of Lady Godiva, who rode naked through the city centre, and a nearby statue of Peeping Tom, the man who secretly spied on her. One of the few monuments to sexual deviance in the West Midlands area. <laughs> have you ever been to Coventry, guys? I don't think I have been to Coventry, no. But Lady Godiva... I know one fact about Lady Godiva... OK. ..that probably is very niche. But, you know, the statue? Yeah. I remember seeing Mo Molum get interviewed. <laughs> and she'd, um, when she was a child, she'd campaigned to have the statue cleaned. That's the most boring fact I've ever said. <laughs> and I have no idea why that has stuck with me for so That's many years. That's a great fact. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it is nice. Yeah. But it is true, yeah. Peeping Tom gets his own statue. But it's not a true story, is it? I mean, there's certain questions. That, as I recall it, correct me if either of you know different, she was naked on a horse mm. and she had very, very long hair with which she covered her... Bits. Bits, yeah. <laughs> so how long was she planning... The ride. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, oh yes, that's what I'll do. Okay, I'll just wait for it to grow. <laughs> and also, and again, this is what I think, she was protesting against taxis. She felt that the taxis were unfair. Am I right in saying that it was her husband's yeah. taxis? Maybe. Or, or her dad's? But it's a, it's a strange protest. It's not a protest that you get away with these days, is it? <laughs> the equivalent would be if George Osborne's wife did it. <laughs> Which would be an astonishingly yeah. big news story, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, that would be massive. <laughs> that would be huge! As I, think it's, I feel sorry for the horse in this story. You know, you've just got a naked person sitting on you and that it, it's just a bit grim for the horse. No, I know, it's bad when people do it on your sofa. <laughs> <laughs> but when they do it on your back... <laughs> OK, well... Kate, I have a horrible <laughs> feeling now. Are you going to tell us that there wasn't a Lady Godiva? There was a Lady Godiva. Oh, okay. There okay. was. Oh, she was called God Gifu, to give her Anglo-Saxon name. And she was actually a really important landowner. She was in the Doomsday Book as a landowner. And the story, that's, that's the myth, that her husband said, OK, I'm going to impose these really tough taxes on Coventry. Oh, that was right, the taxes. And okay. she says, oh, no. And he says, well... I won't do it if you ride naked through the streets. I didn't realise that was the story, that he'd sort of dared her to do it. It was his idea. He said, well, I won't do it, love, if you're going to ride through naked through the streets of Coventry. But when she did do it, they, this is the myth, that they asked everyone to stay behind their shutters and not look. Apart from the myth is, Peeping Tom thought, well, I'll have a little peek. But if it wasn't for Peeping Tom, we wouldn't have an eyewitness. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, though, it's not true. It's oh. not true. It's a whole lot of it. Well, she was true. She was there. Her husband, Leofric, he was... They were major landowners. Thing is, Coventry was pretty small, so uh, if you rode through it, probably no-one was in. There were only 69 families there, so it's a little hamlet. It wasn't the metropolis it is now. You don't want to do that, no-one turns up, do you? That no. would be really <laughs> Oh, they're all at the park. Just go round again. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, 
So, and, and it, what it is, is it's a 13th century, and she was in the 11th century, so it might not be true. And peeping Tom, he doesn't pop up till the 18th century, and Tom is not an Anglo-Saxon name, so he was a complete invention. Well, they could have changed his name. But they could have said it's peeping... You know, for legal reasons. <laughs> peeping Bill. <laughs> and, you know, what we think is what she was doing was possibly riding through the streets as a penitent, so very humbly dressed, very simply dressed, not with all the foul and kind of folderol of an Anglo-Saxon noblewoman. Right. But that's what we think it might possibly be. But otherwise, there's no mention of this nakedness to the 13th century. So it's these 13th century people going, you know what? Those 11th century women, they do anything to get their clothes off. <laughs> Right. And you know, they got the first Lady Godiva parade was in 1678, and they did it over and over again until the 1960s. But in all of them, a man had to play Lady Godiva because it was too much to send someone, a naked woman out. A naked man? Yeah. Did they change the tax thing? Well, was there was never really, a, there was never much of a big tax anyway, because <laughs> he was no worse than any I'm other landowner. I'm mainly landowner. about my tax. <laughs> yeah, it's a tax. Well, you know, one of the things that worried me about this particular topic is that I thought that Dr. Kate would say... Either she didn't exist or she didn't ride naked. She did exist at least, so yeah. I can rescue that. Yeah, and Mo Molan did come from Coventry, so we've got a few positives. <laughs> OK, well, that's something I've learnt. Incredibly, in the Lady Godiva section, <laughs> I've learnt that Mo Molan came from Coventry. <laughs> it's a funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> And now the round that I call Not All Bad, in which we look at the villains of history and see if they have even the tiniest of redeeming features. In this week's Not All Bad, we're looking at Richard III. OK, so what do you know about Richard III, guys? There is a song by Supergrass about him. <laughs> OK. And there my lesson ends. <laughs> what about you, Rasheen? Um, I know a bit about him because recently he was found in the car park. Remember that we story all? last year? <laughs> in, Leicester. in Leicester. I did know that, yeah. turns out. Are you familiar with the Shakespeare play, though, Richard III? I know, I have, yeah. Yeah, he's sort of bent and misshapen and horrible. Funny, mm. but horrible. <laughs> One thing that sticks in my memory is at the end of the play, Richard III, as he dies, and I don't know whether these were his actual dying words, but he, he shouts, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Which I find interesting because Elizabeth I, I know, when she died, said, all my possessions for a moment of time. And it strikes me, if you hang around monarchs, <laughs> towards the end, you're going to pick up some amazing bargains. <laughs> it's like going to the supermarket just before they close. <laughs> so... Um, what I'd like to know, and I hope we'll find out, is whether Shakespeare sort of turned him into a bad guy. Because he does stuff like he kills two children who are locked in the... T the princes in the tower. Oh, yeah. Well, how much would Shakespeare know? How did he have so much historical knowledge? As I remember it, he said he used a historian called Hollinshead. He read his book, mm. and he took a lot of it from that. But I don't know whether, you know, he got My Kingdom for a Horse or any of that stuff from that. Was Shakespeare's uh, portrayal of Richard III fair? Well, he borrowed a lot of it, as you said, from Raphael Holinshed, who both of them they were trying to please the Tudors. So basically, you've got to remember that Shakespeare is playing to Elizabeth I, whose granddad killed Richard III, so she likes to imagine that her granddad killed a baddie, 
a real baddie. Right. They, uh, Hollinshed said all kinds of mean things. He said, uh, his face was small, but his countenance cruel. And at the first aspect, a man would judge him to have a smell of malice, fraud and deceit. So there was no grey areas. He was all evil. And Shakespeare kind of took that and made it into one big dramatic personal play. But what about the hunchback and all that? Well, that's the thing, because historians thought he didn't have a hunchback. And then when he was found last year, he was curved. But he didn't have a very, very hunched. It was more like scoliosis with a shoulder a bit up there. Oh, OK. So Shakespeare overdid it, but still, you know... But it explained that random speed bump in the car park. (laughs) (laughs) Over the R section. (laughs) Yeah, that was a weird thing, wasn't it? That was a weird thing. Philippa Langley, she went to the car park and said, he is here, I can feel it. And then she said, there he is. On the spot, there was a giant R. Now, you and I might think that was a giant R for reserved, but Philippa knew that was Richard, and it was. There he was. Yeah, really? I suppose she just had a hunch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have a guest here tonight whose name is Michael Ibsen. Now, Michael, you are relevant to the Richard III story. Can you tell us why? I am a descendant of his sister, Anne of York. So did you get a phone call <laughs> that said, we found Richard III under a car park. Can you give us some of your DNA? Not quite. What happened was originally in 2004, there was an attempt to prove that some bones that were found in Belgium were those of Margaret of Burgundy, one of Richard's other sisters. (laughs) And therefore, they initiated this search for an all-female line of descent and found my mother. So she's related to Richard III? Yes. Well, there are two aspects to it. There are actually many, many people who are descended from Richard III's family, not from Richard himself. He had no descendants. But in our case, it's Anne of York, his elder sister. And the historian rang her up in Canada and said, um, we've discovered that you're related to Richard III. And by the way, could we have a DNA sample to prove that his sister's remains have been found in Belgium? She agreed. I, I never get calls like that. <laughs> if someone called me and said, you're related to Richard III, we've found his body, can we have your DNA? I'd mm. think, there's been a string of murders. <laughs> and clearly they're trying to trick me. Into giving like up. one of those emails you get from Nigerian princes, isn't <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> so, if, like, how many people would have to die before you became king? <laughs> An awful lot. Yeah, exactly. I wish I hadn't come out here and started slagging him off now I know his relatives here. I oh, know. <laughs> We've been all right about it. So, how do you feel about it? Do you feel a sort of connection with Richard III? Did you feel emotional? I think the point that it really came home to me was... Actually, the day of the press conference when they announced that they had indeed found Richard III, I was uh, taken in early in the morning to stand next to the remains of Richard III along with the geneticist, Terry King. And I stood there and I thought, I'm standing next to Richard III, and I could see the sword marks on his skull. And I thought, I'm related to him. He's a very, very distant uncle of some mm. sort. And the hairs in the back of my neck just sort of stood up. Yeah. It was sort of a triple whammy standing there. Well, um, further, would you like to buy a horse? (laughs) (laughs) No, thank thank you you very much for talking to us, Michael. It's really fascinating. What about a big hand for Michael? (laughs) So do we know that in reality... What was he like? How much do we know about that? Was he better than his portrayal? I mean, he was actually not all bad at all. He was only on the throne for two years. That's what we forget. He was really hardly there to make a difference at all. Uh, you know, let's see how long Charles gets. Maybe <laughs> 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 he did a lot of pretty good things. So he was someone who really cared about the common people. So he was popular up north. He was the first king ever to take the north seriously. He was on the first president of the Council of the North. And two great things he did was he brought in Bale, 
Because until then, basically, when you were arrested, they took all your belongings and said, right, you know, you're pretty much guilty. So he brought in bail, the idea that your belongings wouldn't be taken. So really, the innocent till proven guilty was at starting with Richard III. And he did some really other great things, like banning restrictions on the printing and sale of books. So he was a pretty good guy in some ways. And then, yeah, you know... He, he was ki- bookish. He was bookish. I mean, he was a pretty great man. He was liked by the common people. The problem is, and then there were these two little boys that kind of disappeared and people began to think perhaps he wasn't so good. Mm. And did he kill the princess in the tower? You know, the jury's out. Did he kill the princess in the tower? The jury's, the jury's still out. out. <laughs> you know, I think... I'm being really honest, think. they take their time in the judicial <laughs> system. They one. They took ages. I think that someone did it to please him. Someone said, OK, you know, I'll get rid of those kids to please him. Sorry, why did he want them killed? Because they were the, the chap he disposed to get to the throne. Oh. They were his sons. They had the actual, the fit line to the throne. So did he say, a horse, a horse, my kingdom? We don't know horse. his last words, but he was knocked off his horse, which is an indignity he was pretty much without all his army he was pretty much naked so basically he did anything for a horse a jumper and a sandwich I think (laughs) (laughs) oh you would expect that a multi-million dollar icon like Walt Disney would be buried in an enormous family grave I suppose you'd call it Vault Disney (laughs) but as we all know he's actually buried in a block of ice or is he? This is typical of the questions we'll be asking in the next round. I see dead people. <laughs> not, no, not I see dead people. Not I see. I, I see. So, um, Walt Disney, what, what do you know about his afterlife? I don't know that much about his afterlife, but I went to it on holiday to Mahaca in Spain mm. and the village on a mountain that looks very much like Disneyland and all the locals insist that Walt Disney is Spanish and that he went to America and reinvented himself. I mean, I don't know how true this is, but the whole town insists that he's from Mahaka. So it's a, a few fabulous random celebrity to choose. Though, <laughs> yeah. But have you heard about the fact that he's in a block of ice? Didn't he freeze his head? Cryogenically frozen. Just what? his head. I Who think he's... want to wake up with just a head. Well, no, I think he was then going to be put on a body at later date. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it was going to be goofy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, now I'm going to do a rare moment where I'm going to take the uh, Dr. Kate role because I happen to know that Walt oh. Disney is not not the whole him, not his head. He was actually cremated, so it's about as wrong as it could possibly be. <laughs> So do you know of any famous people who aren't buried, who are stuffed, who are preserved in some way? I'm thinking Lenin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh there was someone who's been stuffed. Yes, that- Jeremy Bentham. That's it. Jeremy Bentham is in University College in London, and he asked if he could be stuffed. Do the students walk past him when they go in and he's just sitting there? He was, but now he's further back. But they do pop him out. So on the 100th and... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the 100th and 150th anniversary of the college, they bring him to the meetings. And in 2013, he was brought to the meeting of the college council. So you've got the vice-chancellor, you know, the head of all the schools, and then you've got a stuffed Jeremy Bentham, and he was recorded in the minutes as present but not voting. (laughs) Was he? Uh, when was he stuffed? Well, he was stuffed in 1832, which is when he died. And he left this will saying... Yes, I should I wanna... bloody well hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately well, he didn't die till 1837. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I want to be an auto-icon, so like an icon of myself. That's what I want. Is he, is he complete? He is complete. He's still there. But he hasn't the head. 
is no longer there because they oh, had what, to... just a minute he's complete yeah without the head but he hasn't got a head because they tried to mummify it and it failed and it looked a bit brown and the students played pranks with it and so instead what they've got is this wax head with some of bentham's real hair and they've got the head in secure storage but i'm just i'm surprised that you can declare that when you die you want to be stuffed I just think, because he was such an experimental guy, he thought, I'm going to be the first person to be an auto-icon and it's going to catch on. Oh. No. I'm glad it didn't catch on. Yeah. No, you wouldn't I fancy it. I don't it. know, really. You know, Would it be legal to be stuffed now? I think you've got to be buried. You've got to, you've got to, it wouldn't be legal, so you'd have to get a special exemption. If you were going to get stuffed, if we all decided we were going to get stuffed and you wanted people to look at you forever and you're not just sitting there being creepy or like... In a mood or like happy disco dancing, you. disco dancing. No, I, 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 I'd want to be stuffed with my right arm raised and slightly curved so that people could get under it <laughs> for photo opportunities. Could you be stuffed without your head? So, you know, those things at the seaside where you stick your head. <laughs> Put the head over it. <laughs> you can't help thinking. I think, you know, burial is pretty boring, isn't it? Everybody gets buried or cremated now. The burial of celebrities is missing a bit of an opportunity, isn't it? Because people would go and visit. Madame Tussauds will be, They'd be absolutely <laughs> limited. Absolutely furious. Do you know how Madame Tussauds came about? Because when you go in, it's all celebrities, and then the last room is how it happened. And she, when they were beheading people in France, she'd get the head and then make a waxwork of that. And she was just touring waxworks of beheaded heads. Wow. Mm. Is that true? Yeah, and it caught... So she, there was quite a lot of popular waxwork shows at the time, but she was this one who, yeah, she took the heads, she modelled them, and she really showed them off, partly to the relatives. And then she realised there was this real appetite for it. So it was particularly once it all stopped and France settled down and they said, OK, no more beheading, people wanted to see the travelling beheading show. In those days, in that time, they were so obsessed with beheading and so obsessed with what had happened in the terror that the ideal fashion to wear... So we'd, we'd all be wearing this post-terror in France in the 18th century. So so men would have their coats over their heads to look like they had no head. And us ladies would have a, a necklace of red around our neck to show our heads being chopped off. So having chopped off heads was all the chic in those days. <laughs> it was the look. Oh, my wow. God, yeah. But I would go, say, for example, if there was, like, a real famous person from history stuffed, I'd really like to go and see them. That would be better than seeing their grave. It'd be quite exciting. Yeah. I'd uh, go and... If I was in you... Moscow, I'd go and see Lenin, definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh. Is, is Lenin stuffed or is he... He is. What they did was they put him in this mausoleum and they embalmed him, but uh, it wasn't super successful. So he's got this waterproof suit under his actual uniform because the embalming fluid was leaking. And, he's, wow. you know, he's a big attraction, as you said, Frank. I mean, between, say, 1924 and 1972, 10 million people came filing past Lenin and that's how they wow. noticed it was wow. leaking. Can you, I don't know about you, but I can't sell anywhere near that amount of tickets and I'm alive. <laughs> There's a lot of appeal in this. You know, Sir Walter Raleigh, his wife, used to carry round his head in a bag and whip it out at dinner parties to show her friends. Oh, my God. Look, here he is, still with me, girls. Wow. (laughs) You can't imagine a sort of Western leader being David Cameron, or you can't imagine... That would have gone... (laughs) Barack Obama. No. You'd need a Barack Obama. (laughs) 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 Well, time's up here, end of the lesson. Uh... Josh and Rasheen, did you learn anything tonight? Yes. <laughs> You've been very secretive about it. I'd like it. to keep it to myself, 
Yeah, I did. I learned enough about Richard III to pretend I've seen the play. <laughs> that, that's pretty good stuff. I think the most remarkable historical fact I've learned that you were at school in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> It's made me feel like I could be a subject on here rather than a host. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Dr. Kate Williams, and our guests, Rasheen Connerty and Josh Widdicombe. And thank you for listening. And the rest, as they say. <laughs> the rest is history was hosted by Frank Skinner with Dr. Kate Williams. The guests were Josh Widdicombe and Rasheen Connerty. And the producers were Justin Pollard and Dan Schreiber. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs>